You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. It is... April 15th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. And in case you didn't know, the IRS has extended your filing date until May 17th. (laughs) Tonight uh, is uh, compassion for all sentient beings. And so we're gonna wrap up uh, our compassion cycle. I'm often, interested in the way that this lands in Buddhist communities because uh, often, uh, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, for instance, compassion, limitless compassion is one of the goals and it's talked about somewhat in Theravada communities, particularly if there's a focus on the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes. Um, And the idea then is to hold the space for everybody, no one excluded. But often in, in Buddhist communities, because of the nature of the, of the ideas around reincarnation, often it doesn't translate into actions uh, within the community. Um, and so I, I often have uh, difficulty with that. Um, that may come from uh, growing up in a Judeo-Christian society where charity is actually this action that, that is taught where it isn't really so much in Buddhist communities. The idea is that your your karma is the one that put you in that situation. And so you have to endure the, the impact of that karma. But we are all together on this planet and the actions of all of us together on this planet are resulting in you know this pandemic, for instance, which is actually, um, I think, coming out of uh, the the trends uh, and the way that we treat the planet. Um, <coughs> um, it's coming uh, from climate change, from population. Um, I'm a, a big fan of Pinckney, which uh, um, is a he's an economist, a French economist, philosopher. Um, We are, you know, in this country in particular, used to that analysis of capital coming from Marx uh, and Lenin from 19, the 19th century interpretation of it. And I, I think that Marx actually understood the industrialization process of capital uh, very well, but that we're not there anymore. And so that the, the view that Pinkerty describes seems to make more sense in the capital in the 21st century, so one of his books, you may be familiar with it. Capital and Ideology is another one of his books. But one of the things that he uh, noted that I thought was so interesting uh, is that uh, North America and Western Europe have about the same man- land mass as China and India. And yet our populations in these, this part of the world is a third or a quarter of what it is in uh, India or China, and what might the cause of that be? And what he pointed to was that 
China and India, it's primarily a plant-based diet. And in, in Western Europe and North America, it's uh, primarily a meat-based diet. Because it takes 70 portions of plant-based food to create one portion of meat, we have much less food in uh, North America and in Western Europe. And that, that's naturally put a, a break on <clears throat> uh, the population. Interesting to look at it from that economic point of view. Uh, with climate change, of course, all of the, the, uh, the uh, energies that it takes to grow all of this food to support this population on the planet that's, that's approaching uh, 7 billion, um, not more, that we have a tendency to take uh, a census, but not everybody makes a census. So it's hard to know. Um, David Attenborough in his film about the climate says, in order to stabilize the climate, we're gonna need to reduce arable land by about two thirds. So reduce farmland and, and pasture by about two thirds. So if you look at a North America and Western Europe, if we switch from a, a meat-based diet to a plant-based diet, we could reduce the amount of farmland by two thirds and the population would be largely unaffected in terms of that. <clears throat> we would have more food because we would shift from uh, meat-based to plant-based, but in places like India and China, that isn't possible. If you watch the climate science, they say that 19% of the, the earth that's currently inhabited will become uninhabitable. Uh, and that that's about 4 billion people. So India and China. The, the parts that are in the tropics are going to become too hot to grow food and that people are gonna naturally have to migrate into more temperate regions of the world. Um, <clears throat> we luck out again in North America, of course, because the tropical band is mostly in South America, not in North America. And so that the population that's gonna drift north as opposed to the population that's gonna drift south is much smaller. Uh, coming in our direction. But in Europe, uh, where the Middle East is already getting too hot to, uh, to live in, you may have noticed in the, the paper, uh, an article about Jordan, that the Dead Sea is drying up and they're having terrible problems around water. Uh, and and, and uh, what really happens at that point is this disruption in the capacity to grow food the temperatures are now getting so hot in some areas in the summertime that it's life-threatening to be outside. And so the populations are moving already out of the Middle East. If you tie the climate into the wars that are there, according to Weiwei, who made this wonderful film about uh, migration and uh, immigration, um, 68 million people are already moving a large number, right? But and then you read in the New the, the Time, New York Times, that we're we have a, an immigration crisis at the border, but 
what I want you to really grasp is that it's a trickle compared to what's coming. And we are talking about compassion for all sentient beings. How do we embrace this, uh, this world where not millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions, but billions of people are going to be displaced by climate change uh, in our lifetime. Well, I'm a little older, but uh, <laughs> there are people alive today <clears throat> who will have to address this in some, some way. I was, um, maybe you saw, I, I, I really like to talk about this only from uh, news sources <coughs> that are fairly mainstream. So I'm always talking about articles that are in the New York Times or in the Los Angeles Times or in the Guardian, something like that. Uh, the city of Miami proposed building a two foot seawall. But it said in the New York Times that the sea rise is going to be 20 or 30 feet, which means Florida is going to end at Jacksonville. All of it is going to be gone. And a two foot wall isn't going to help. <coughs> Even on the, the climate protections where I'm living currently in Los Angeles, is going to be underwater uh, if there's a, a 20 to 30 foot sea rise. I'm hoping for a few years of beachfront property <laughs> before I have to move. <coughs> um, I think that we have not been willing to stop climate change and that the, the tipping point has probably already happened. And so now what we're really going to have to do is endure the, the consequences of that. Mainly what will happen is the disruption of the food supply. Um, in, the, in the paper, it said that the semi-tropical zone is gonna move north and that uh, it will extend upward around to around uh, Southern Illinois across the Midwest, you know where that is. That the, the temperate zone where we currently grow most of the food is gonna shift up to the upper Midwest and to lower Canada. That Missouri, for instance, will have the weather that New Orleans has. Can you make sense of that? 50 or 60 miles of, of Texas is going to be underwater, so moving up. Houston is basically going to be underwater. This is what they're saying in the mainstream newspapers. I read in the paper today that 45% of people who identify themselves as Republican are not going to be vaccinated. This, of course, is the this is the world that we live in. Um, these uh, these ideas that are quite different than my ideas, um, but that doesn't relieve us at all of our uh, our practice of compassion for everyone. We have to hold 
this whole space for that. If we build another clown wall across the, the, the southern border, it's not going to keep tens of millions of climate refugees from needing to come north. Uh, are we going to build a wall and then simply kill them as they, they come? Is that our response to this? Am I, I, I am actually frightened that the, the wealthy nations, uh, the colonializers, are going to simply seal themselves up and then watch uh, 4 billion people starve to death on television and not do anything to address it. And so uh, I think that we have an obligation to understand that this is what's going to happen and we should begin to make uh, plans to address this. We've just lived through the first part of the pandemic where we saw uh, what happens when um, there is no actual plan of action. And we've seen in the change of administration, the plan of action being implemented. But at the same time, the cost in terms of, of uh, deaths was probably around 400,000, and that's at least the calculation now. 400,000 people died that um, might not have had to die had there been some kind of organization to address this. Had we as a, a community of America come together and been willing to do the simple things that were called for in order to try and uh, slow down the spread of this. Virus. <clears throat> How then do you express compassion? How do you engage in a compassionate response to the world when so many people are unwilling to act in a way that is in the interest of the community as a whole? So I think this is the question of the, the period that we're in. How do you <clears throat> respond compassionately to people that are actively harming? How do you stay open to the and willing uh, to do that? Some of these actions actually become, uh, in my mind, unforgivable. I don't mean it's a kind of intrinsic uh, uh, action that can uh, in itself be unforgivable but that I can't do it personally. I see these actions, they seem uh, uh, horrendous and I can't get myself <coughs> to be willing to be open. We know, for instance, that uh, the meat issue is this terrible burden on the planet. And yet the simplest action, which is simply not to do, not to do that, there's uh, plenty of alternatives to that. Um, people don't do that. Is that a compassionate stance, a, a limitless compassionate stance toward all beings. 
in traditional Buddhist thought, of course, animals are not sentient, and so they're not included in that gathering together. But in Western science, we've tested, uh, and we can see that the sentience is widespread throughout um, many species that are not human. Um, <clears throat> one of the studies was um, they took uh, uh, red uh, grease paint and they put a dot on the nose of different uh, species and then they showed them a mirror and some people some species just wiped it off for instance the, the one that I thought thought was hilarious was the raven they put a red dot on the beak of the raven and the raven looked in the mirror and just wiped it off that means that they, they have a sense of self they, they're able to recognize themselves in some reflective service uh, <coughs> surface understand that there's a red dot on their note on their beak that shouldn't be there and then to, to have a wherewithal to wipe it off is that sentient and should though all of those species that have sentience be included in this this group of sentient beings compassion for all <coughs> sentient beings and what about the beings that don't necessarily have sentience? There's a, a, a new film out uh, called the Seedspiracy, I think it's called. Although I, I, I do think that Conspiracy would have been an easier title. <laughs> we see that uh, we can't turn to the oceans to feed this uh, enormous po uh, population because it's killing the oceans. Uh, when I was in Myanmar in, in um, 2019, I went south. Uh, <coughs> there's this great archipelago uh, in southern Myanmar, which is on the World Heritage Site. This vast reef and um, and so I thought I would go have a look at it and go scuba diving. And it was a harrowing experience because it was dead. This vast reef was dead. And then you read in the paper that 95% of the Great Barrier Reef is dead. And you read in the paper that the, 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 the Great Reef on the Florida Keys that uh, was one of my favorite experiences diving when I was a kid was also gone. Uh, we can't live with a dead ocean. One of the things about being this apex predator that we are as human beings is that we somehow think that we don't need all of these systems in support of us, which is not true. All of these, uh, these systems need to be in place so that we also can survive in this. If you're eating meat, is it not an expression of unlimited cruelty rather than limitless compassion? And yet uh, in, in the moment it's delicious and the craving for the sense pleasure takes that up. And 
you can imagine that our little contribution isn't going to push the whole system over the top. But even if you are inclined toward that and you are inclined toward embracing all of us together, uh, and you are inclined toward taking actions that will serve all of us together, what do we do about this half of this country that isn't interested in any of that, isn't willing to do any of that, and are perfectly content to push us all over the cliff? This is the conundrum <coughs> of this practice of compassion, right? In Buddhist uh, understanding, compassion is narrowly focused on the suffering of other people. Uh, when I first uh, came into the uh, to the, uh, the meditation communities exploring this, the phrase was that suffering people uh, act out in ways that cause suffering. This one. And so you can see in uh, the distresses that, that manifest in people that then in some ways act out this pain that they're in. You probably all do that to some degree. When I was in Myanmar doing the Meta training with Wu into Kaseyadao. He always instructed the metta practice for all sentient beings to be this <coughs> outward, expansive uh, practice that made all sentient beings one group, one object. And because of <coughs> holding that experience of all of us together, not allowing, intentionally not allowing the mind to contract around any particular person or any particular subgroup, only then could you actually hold everybody together because if you didn't do that, then the mind would uh, begin to isolate individuals or small groups and want to push them out of the, the, the whole wholeness of us. And then we would have most of us or the people that we can hold with compassion and everyone else would be excluded from that. So that division comes in. From an attachment perspective, of course, when the attachment mechanism goes off, it causes us to seek comfort in people that we've identified as uh, our protectors and to view everybody else as a stranger and therefore dangerous. So we have these mechanisms built into us that naturally identify a friend and foe. So there's some overriding of this to see us all in this together. When you look at the science of it, of course, it's a no brainer. We are all, all of us in, in this together. All of these different systems that support the life on this planet are necessary for us to live in the way that we do. <clears throat> I was reading in the paper that uh, the shift from the belt that, that's very productive temperature-wise for the monocultures that we, we have, uh, that our big agriculture grows is gonna move north <coughs> so that Montana, say, 
uh, North and South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, upstate New York, and, and that strip of Southern Canada is now going through the primary growing weather. But the, the soil isn't nearly as good as the much richer soil that was in the South. And then there was a response from somebody who said that because of the way that we've been conducting agriculture for the last hundred years, that land is no longer as productive as it was, but it is actually very similar to the land that's for the North because we've been using chemicals and pesticides and monoculture, we've basically stripped the land down. <clears throat> you look, of course, in, in uh, more traditional farming cultures where they're constantly adding to the soil the things that naturally create a fertile environment for growing things, but we don't do that here because it's too expensive and and reduces the amount of money that we can take out of it. Still, how do you turn to all of the suffering people, all of the people that are coming because of climate change, because of the loss of habitat, the loss of capacity to grow food, how do we respond to that in a compassionate way where we actually meet the needs of these people and at the same time ensure that, that we have what we need? Elon Musk is, appar is apparently preparing to fly to Mars <laughs> as a way to, to respond to this. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that most of us are not going to be able to fly to Mars, and it seems worse up there than down here. <laughs> so. <clears throat> so compassion is a mind state, right? And we create this mind state of compassion, which is this willingness to hold the suffering experience of other people. That's uh, the activity of this. Um, can you recognize what that mindset is, that willingness? Uh, you know, in Buddhist thought, uh, <coughs> I have reflux, so that's what the cough is. Uh, I'm hoping it'll get better. And I am attending to it, but it's, it's a slow process. We naturally re recoil from pain when we engage in an empathetic response to somebody else. Um, so uh, empathy we talk about in these three levels. The first is this visceral response to the experience of someone else's uh, physical or emotional pain, a kind of whinginess that happens. It acts as a break, really. If you do something to somebody that you're close to, and you cause them pain and you have an empathetic response to that, you feel the pain that you are causing them and then you're able to put a break on the behavior, hopefully. If you have a strong empathetic connection to somebody else and you cause them pain, you'll respond to that. And if you don't have much of an empathetic capacity, you won't and you won't prevent yourself from really causing harm to the relationship. 
the second level of empathy is where you're able to look at somebody and read their facial expressions and their body language and understand that that's a representation of their internal state. And the third level is this compassion and empathy where we create in our own bodies a facsimile of the feeling states that we find in the other person. And we're able to understand their internal state through the direct experience of it in our own bodies. And we use that second level of comparing their external presentation to our sense of their internal experience. And if they match, we tend to believe them. And if they don't match, we tend to suspect that they're not being uh, truthful. <clears throat> if you encounter somebody who's suffering and you have the capacity for empathy, of course, you experience their suffering. And uh, if you don't train the body-mind, it disconnects from that empathetic response to a detached response. And sometimes pity, you create a, a narrative of, uh, of their experience in your own mind, which helps you emotionally regulate the experience of witnessing the suffering, but you don't actually engage in a connection and, and in a, in a feeling of that suffering that's coming from the other person, it's all created. And then the far enemy, of course, is cruelty, this devaluing of the other person. I notice um, that in, in the response, the uh, enormous suffering that there is, uh, cruelty is a very common response. The pandemic, of course, has caused these uh, economic hardships in our society, which is already so uh, unequal. And so what you see, uh, at least in Los Angeles, when I go out is that the homeless uh, situation is spread everywhere. Mm -hmm. Enormous suffering. And so do you, do you think about that in the sense that uh, that is the result of their karma, of their intentions and actions, and that it's deserved because of that? And that if we don't have to have that experience, that our karma is different and better. This is, a, I think, an inadequate understanding of the, the nature of karma. <clears throat> In The Guardian um, today, it said that one way to think about the Im immigration crisis and, and, and in preparing for this uh, influx of uh, immigration that we've really never experienced before as a result of climate change, that we should begin to think of it as reparations for colonialism because so much of the actions of colonialism are what's causing the disruption now. There is a, a larger discussion of reparations. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, and Evanston, Illinois is the first city in the country to offer reparations to its citizens. So it's a descendant of slaves, uh, citizens who can demonstrate that there was some uh, discrimination against them. It's a, it's a greater <clears throat> conversation now. If we look at that, the, the descendants of slaves and the reparations for that, then what we're talking about is 250 years of unpaid wages, 
150 years of suppressed wages, interest to cover all of that, and then punitive damages for the kidnapping and enslaving of the people originally, and then the kidnapping and enslaving of their children for centuries. If you did a quick calculation, what you may notice is that's really a bigger number than the value of everything in our country. And that doesn't even include <clears throat> reasonable representation or reparations for the, the, the native populations that are here. There isn't enough value in, in that sense to, to, to make a, uh, an actual reparation. So then it's going to be in some ways uh, <coughs> symbolic, but also <coughs> need to have some value. Can you hold that space? Open to that? This uh, generational trauma, centuries long, how much suffering that is, and how um, as descendants of um, um, European Americans, my family um, on two sides, well, my <clears throat> both of my grandmothers were first generation famine Irish. Their families came over from Ireland after the potato famine, which was the 1860s and 70s. Both for you know shanty Irish. None of this lace curtain crap. <laughs> you know, to come from that, my grandmother on my mother's side said, um, "George, you will never understand how I grew up, considering how you grew up. I grew up in a great big house." upper middle class. My dad was a doctor. Uh, both of my parents had uh, degrees from Ivy land out east. <clears throat> You'll never understand how I grew up. When I was 16, I went, I, I walked into the front yard of the house that I was growing in. She grew up in Alberta, Canada on the wheat field. Should I just stoop to get out of the log cabin that had a sod roof, a one room log cabin with a sod roof? Our parents were wheat farmers. Uh, and incidentally, she was not even five feet tall, but she had to stoop to get out <laughs> the doorway. <clears throat> she said, I stood in the front yard of the house, I turned 360 degrees, and all I could see were wheat fields. And the voice in my head said, you got to get the hell out of here. And, uh, she said that it took her a year to talk, or she talked her mother into uh, uh, sending her to college. And uh, she said it took her mother a year to talk her father into sending her to college. And then they went through the society magazines to look for schools where rich kids went to so that she could marry up. And uh, she said, as they were putting her on the train, uh, 
the father said, you have one year to become engaged, so you have to come back to the farm. And her mother said, now is not a good time to be an Irish Catholic. Better you be a British Protestant. <clears throat> so she said she got on the train. They picked Lake Forest College outside of Chicago because that was <coughs> supposed to be one of the party schools that rich kids went to. And they thought it would be easier for, to, for her to become engaged. So this is in the, you know, the 1910s. She got on the train an Irish Catholic and she got off a British Protestant. And by the end of the first year of college, she was engaged to be married to somebody who came from a wealthy family. <clears throat> this is the 19 teens. In the 1920s, you may remember, there was a huge crash. And uh, she said, uh, we landed in the upper middle class. So it was a fairly substantial reduction in that. <coughs> so, I come from this family that's very was very oriented toward social mobility upward. In the, but we had those opportunities really, and, and so many other people don't have those opportunities um, based on uh, origin. Uh, and that that view can be blinding to to the situation and you can see yourself easily as separate or different from that. And because you can do it and other people don't do it, there's something uh, about them uh, that causes them not to be able to do it, which is I think uh, an expression of cruelty, a disconnection from really being willing to see what's happening. So we hold the mindset of compassion we open to the suffering experience of other people. We allow an empathetic connection to perform between us and we bring our capacity to emotionally regulate uh, that experience. And in that uh, empathetic exchange, help reduce the suffering of the other person because our capacity to hold this, the scene and help with the emotional regulation has a tendency to reduce that suffering. <clears throat> When it comes to all sentient beings, how much of that capacity do you think that you're gonna be able to generate on your own? I like to say those three meager drops of compassion that I can generate within myself uh, is probably not gonna be enough. And so then it really is opening and touching into the source and allowing that source energy to flow through. So this is again where we practice to open to this capacity to hold the compassionate space. So I've been asking over and over again, how do we hold the space uh, for all suffering beings when half of them don't even wanna do anything about the suffering? And we can't really come up with this uh, as an individual, it's just me trying to do this. And I, I 
I already suggested that I wasn't able to do it, but then opening <clears throat> and allowing this source energy this, to come out of the sense of limited identity into this vast awareness of, of what's actually here. Sometimes it's hard to see that when you're caught up in the, this uh, individual identity. Um, and my mind has a harder time with it. Uh, I was just on retreat um, and uh, it was a Tibetan retreat. And at the end of the retreat, there was a, a, a guru practice of, of channeling in the mind-to-mind uh, -mind transmission of uh, awakened awareness uh, asking for a message about your practice with the, with the, the lineage teachers. And I got a very clear message. So I was asking my teacher about it. And uh, I said, so I got the very clear message. I did, all, I did the instruction. I did the practice. The very clear message uh, <coughs> entered my mind. But I have a hard time accepting that it was a transmission mind to mind from uh, gurus that are uh, in another place. And his response was, what does it matter if it's helpful? And so, uh, does it, does, so when I say the source is the energy that's going to be able to allow you to expand outward and Maybe your mind is like mine. Yeah, that's a little metaphysical for me. It doesn't seem to make that much sense to me. I really prefer to think about it in, in a quantum sense of it, right? Touching into that quantum space. That space of all possibility. So particularly when we're focusing on all sentient beings, and this vast, this vast planet and this vast number of people and the, the just unlimited suffering that, that you encounter in that, opening to the possibility that you don't have to do it all. You don't have to do all of the lifting yourself that you can touch into this vast expanse of awareness, awakened awareness, and that will provide the capacity, the energy to do this. Is that making sense? So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So how did that go? Good. Christian? So how do you actually think of all beings like in a sort of technique sense how do i know that i'm actually holding all beings um as part of the the meditation how are you, you doing now well I, once in a while i'll kind of interrogate i'll kind of ask myself like am am i holding all beings and then that seems to maybe 
um, power up the mind state a little bit, but um, it, it's, I kind of think of myself as like, like a big bell or something. And I'm kind of just sending stuff out. And it's so in a, in a sense, it's kind of limited to what I can see out my window. And I kind of assume that it goes out to all beings. Um, but I'm, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering like where, where is that rote or, or, you know, is, I don't know. If I had to describe a visual image of it, I would describe a small, tiny little planet Earth in this vast expanse of space. That's the only way that I can reduce the intensity of the suffering enough to be able to hold it. Um, but you could step out of the conceptualization of that into just the, the uh, experience of awareness expanding outward. That's the direction that I would be exploring. Can I imagine this awareness just uh, limitlessly expanding outward in all directions? <coughs> and what is that like? Okay, that's, that's probably akin to what I've been doing. Okay. Good. Because the visual images are all representational in a way that uh, is it's easy to distract you from actually that sense of expansion. Right. Good. Someone else? Thank you all for practicing. <coughs> um, what's coming up? At the end of this month, we have a um, A meditation and addiction weekend retreat, uh, Saturday from nine to four and Sunday from nine to one. We'll go over the four modules of the meditation and addiction program. It's a, a meditation-based relapse prevention program with a particular focus on attachment repair. We think that the underlying cause of addiction is an attachment disturbance. And so looking at that underlying cause and then uh, attempting to repair it so that you can move uh, out of the um, auto-regulating strategies that make up the constellation of addiction behaviors into collaborative experience and co-regulating. That's the idea. Um, I'm gonna do a day long on compassion in uh, May. I'm not quite sure when. I just got accepted into a, a, a retreat with Dan, which that's gonna knock it out of its current date. Um, in June, I'm doing a, a, a <coughs> virtual re retreat, a meditation and attachment retreat. So we'll focus on working with strategies for attachment repair. Uh, and also if you just wanna do a straight enlightenment track, you can do that as well. Um, uh, if you're interested in doing a level two class, we have enough people on the waiting list that we're going to initiate a class starting in May instead of waiting until September. So you could do that earlier if you wanted. Um, and then uh, we're gonna do a series of day longs, level one day longs in August, July and August. And we'll do a meditation and attachment for relationships 
in August and then in September start another level two class. Um, and then uh, in December, we're gonna have our winter retreat. I'm not sure whether it will be an actual uh, retreat in person or whether it will be virtual. It really will depend on how the pandemic pans out. Um, it might be fun after several years to go on retreat again. <laughs> Although <coughs> the, the, the ease of a, a virtual retreat is very pleasant, I find as well. So that's what's coming up. I offer this class on a donation basis. So I offer the teaching freely, uh, offer the teachings freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation and help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. You can find um, a link for making a donation on the website or in the email that you may have received. Uh, again, thank you for your practice and we'll see you soon. Good night. Thank you, Harley.